We have two New Testament scripture readings this morning. Uh, We're going to begin in Acts chapter 4, and then we'll be going to Colossians chapter 1. So here first, the words of Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Now I had trouble picking just one New Testament passage today because we're focusing on the big picture of what all Christ accomplished in his passion. And the fact is that what Christ accomplished is multifaceted. There there are many different things that are spoken of in Scripture that were, were accomplished by what Christ came to do. He came to take on every enemy of his and ours. Jesus Christ has defeated the world, the flesh, the consequences of sin, death, and indeed the devil himself. In other words, everything that stands in the way of you knowing God, of you being in relationship with God and being reconciled to God, all of it he has taken care of. In the book of Acts, we see this with the early believers We see one aspect of what Christ had accomplished. This is just after Peter and John had been arrested by the temple authorities and they told them they weren't allowed to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They said, well, we have to. That's a paraphrase. But they they said, we can't listen to you. We have to listen to God. And they were threatened. And then what do they do after being threatened? They go and they meet with the other believers and they pray. They recognize that this is something that God had said would happen, that the world and the authorities of the world that are in rebellion to God would 
stand against Christ. So they pray, for truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Herod and Pontius Pilate and now others were standing against the anointed of God. In other words, the the world is standing against him. But he has overcome the world. And so they pray on the basis of what Christ has already done. They say, look upon their threats and grant your servants servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Their, Their boldness in continuing to proclaim the gospel in contrast to what the world would have them do is because they know that Christ has already overcome these enemies. And there's more than this, right? So, so Christ has overcome the world, those that stand against him. But there's so many other passages that speak about the different parts of what he has accomplished. We see this in Colossians 1. Not only is there uh, that which stands against Christ and against his people and against people coming to know him that is outside of you, But also, there's the problem that is inside of you. And since he came to defeat every enemy, he came to defeat that too. So in Colossians, we're told that you by nature, that mankind by nature is alienated from God. That is to be cut off from him in need of reconciliation and hostile in mind. This is the sin nature that you don't just sin, you also delight in sin and hate the one who would tell you not to sin? And we're told that we're also doing evil deeds, right? That's just the act of sinning, the actual sins. And this is the result of that being cut off from God, being cut off from true life. But what did Christ do? Paul says, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. So your, your enmity, your hostility, your sinfulness has all been dealt with. All of it has been taken care of. So I hope you have a, a bit of a view of just how multifaceted it is, what Christ has accomplished. And we're going to keep talking about it. There's more as well. But for now, I want you to, to think on, meditate as we continue to pray and sing, meditate on the fact that whatever it is that stands in between you and God, whatever could stand between you and God, between you being reconciled to Him, all of it has been dealt with by Christ. Your disposition of hostility, the judgment of God because of our sin, death itself, the fear thereof, or the work of the devil, all of it. Every bit of it he has overcome. Therefore, you can be reconciled to God. The Old Testament reading and sermon text is Psalm 22. You can find it on the pew, in the Pew Bible on page 457. Hear then this word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the holy and inspired word of God for us this morning. So we've come to a point as we've been working through a series on the foundations of the faith where we're focusing in on the work of Christ, specifically surrounding his crucifixion. And there's so many different aspects to this that we can emphasize as we talked about before. But what we don't often do, what I think it's good to do is to take a step back and to see how total Christ's work was. 
see how he has conquered everything that he came to overcome. We confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. Why is it that Jesus Christ went to the cross to be forsaken of God? The answer is that he went in order that you might be reconciled to God. But reconciliation means that he had to overcome all of the enemies, all of the obstacles that stood in the way. And everything that he faced, he overcame. Everything that he faced, he conquered. And what was that? What did he face? Well, he faced Pilate and the earthly authorities of this world, and he overcame them. He faced the temptation of this world, and he overcame it. He faced sin and the judgment of God due that sin, and he overcame it. He faced death, and he overcame it. He faced the spiritual forces of darkness in this world, and he overcame them. This is why he was forsaken. But he has overcome. So whatever is standing in the way of your being reconciled to God, it has already been dealt with. It is finished. Now many of us are familiar with Psalm 22, at least Psalm 22.1, because it is what Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted this, and we usually stop there. I was just talking to a young man this week who providentially had been in a conversation about Psalm 22. And he said that there was kind of a little bit of a discussion, a debate. Why exactly did Jesus speak these words from this psalm? Was it just to uh, make sure that everybody knew he was the Messiah and this speaks of some messianic prophecies? Was it just to say that he fulfills those prophecies? Was it because he was in anguish and these were the best words to describe that anguish? And I asked him, well, have you read the rest of the psalm? And he kind of was like, wait a minute, is that like, will that help? Like, will that help me understand? I was like... Yeah, if you read the rest of the psalm, you'll actually get a better idea of what exactly Jesus was saying when he used this. Because here's the deal, when Jesus used these words, most of those around him, at least those who had been trained in the psalms, which was most of them outside of the Roman officials, they would all know this psalm. They would know where it ends, not just where it starts they would come to realize or at least see that he's using this psalm not not just because it is a statement of his anguish, but because it's actually a psalm of victory. It's actually a psalm of victory. And this is the victory that Jesus Christ has won. He has overcome every enemy that stood against him and that stood against your soul. This is how we can be reconciled because he was forsaken. 
So we're going to read this psalm as we walk through it. We won't read every bit of it again, but as we work through it, we're looking at it as it was on the lips of Jesus, right? As he used it, as it is fulfilled by him, not just as it was originally written. It was always meant to be used by him. So what does it teach us then? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. To be forsaken is to be abandoned. To be cast aside. Or you could maybe say to be cut off. And this is a word that's used somewhat frequently throughout Scripture. And this is not the right way to do a word study in Scripture. But while I was looking into it, I was fascinated to find that there's one other place that this exact form of this verb is used. There's only one other place. It's in Deuteronomy 28.20, where God is speaking to the people of Israel. You remember Deuteronomy 28 is where God is speaking of what kind of curses will fall on those who break covenant with him. And he tells the people, you have forsaken me. And therefore, these curses are going to come against you. There's this idea that the people would abandon God, and the consequence of that is that they would be abandoned. So even right there, you see this this twofold fulfillment in Christ. That he, being God, was forsaken by the people. And so a curse would fall upon them. And at the same time, all of those who did believe in his name he gave the right to become children of god and so they receive only blessing and he took that forsakenness he took that curse but like i said this isn't a cry of complete despair why have you forsaken me there are all the way through these little glimmers of hope these statements of hope yet you are holy enthroned on praises and you are fathers trusted there's there's this sense of we should be able to trust you lord but in a sense it almost makes it more painful then he remembers the holiness of god and how israel had trusted the lord and not been put to shame that god is a god who will not put to shame those who trust in him that he will always vindicate you He will always rescue you, but in the midst of affliction, for the afflicted one, that fact may make it seem almost worse in the moment, because it seems as though you've been abandoned, forsaken. It seems as though you have been put to shame. It appeared in the moment that Christ was on the cross that he had been completely forsaken. It would have seemed that way to everybody, who saw him condemned, crucified, and buried. And the agony of abandonment, of being under the punishment of God, is so extreme that you hear these words, but I am a worm and not a man. Made so low, so shameful, it's like being a worm. Think about the curse that was on the serpent in the garden. The curse was that the serpent would crawl around on his belly, eating the dust all of his days. If that's the curse on the serpent, what is this then? You are a worm. It's even lower, in a sense. 
the authorities of Rome and Jerusalem both condemned him. Satan, we're told, entered into Judas and he was betrayed. The other disciples all fled when he was arrested. He was mocked relentlessly. And think for a moment about how vicious people can be when they are certain that they're right, when they're certain that what they're doing is just and righteous. Think about how violent people can be and feel justified in it when they have that kind of religious zeal that tells them what I'm doing is good, where they don't hold anything back. He trusts in the Lord, they said, let him deliver him. Right? They, they mocked him. Why wasn't God rescuing him if he was so close to God? If God was his father, if he was the son of God, as he said, why is this happening? This is what it took. That's why this was happening. If he did not overcome it, then it would still stand between you and God. So he had to do this. He had to be forsaken so that you could be reconciled. Now, faith is not always happy, right? When we confess our faith, that statement of belief is sometimes done through gritted teeth and bended knees. You see that in this remembrance that keeps breaking in. There's these, these statements of almost complete lostness, complete abandonment. And then there's these bits of, of a kind of hope. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. It wasn't over yet because there was more for the Lord to face and so overcome. He says that he was surrounded by strong bulls of Bashan. And this could just be speaking about those people that were surrounding him and crucifying him directly. But I actually think that it's more than that. There weren't just earthly enemies arrayed against the Lord's anointed when he was crucified. There were also spiritual enemies. Already said, Satan himself entered into Judas, we're told. But we also know that there were other demonic forces and powers that were set out to destroy Christ. They didn't realize what they were doing. Paul says if they had realized what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory and thus sealed their fate. But they did. Now, uh, Bashan was a region east of the Jordan River known for being a, a lush pasture land. Right? It's where the, the biggest bulls, the biggest cows were raised because they had so much to eat, especially in a really arid region. But for the people of Israel, Bashan also had a fairly dark history because the people of Israel, after their wilderness wandering, had to come through Bashan in order to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. And when they did that, they faced a king named Og, Og of Bashan. And he's likened in Scripture to some kind of giant, right? He's got this massive bed. 
And any time that giants appear in Scripture, it's always tied to some kind of particularly evil demonic forces. Right? It's, it's always a special kind of evil. This is in part why you have the, the eradication of the Canaanites that God told the Israelites to destroy everybody. In part, that was because they were tied to these kinds of demonic forces. And so there's always this holy war that God declares against those particular enemies. And so when this speaks of the, the bulls that encompass him, the strong bulls of Bashan, I think that we should be thinking of particularly demonic forces that were also at work, whether it be in their own right or through the people as Satan was through Judas. He had to face the authorities of this world. He had to face the curse of God. And he also had to overcome and face the satanic forces of this world. He also says that he is being poured out like water. Poured out even to the point of emptying everything. You lay me in the dust of death, it says. He is poured out all the way until there is no more. We can be certain that he died because they even speared him in the side, making sure that he was dead. He was forsaken all the way to death. And he had to be. Because once again, death was another one of those obstacles that stands in the way of reconciliation. You see then from his suffering under Pontius Pilate to his death and burial that he was overcoming the enemies that stood against you and stood against your being reconciled to him. And when we say in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell, there's always been some debate about this. It wasn't always included in the creed depending on where you were. There's been debate about what exactly it means. But I think it'd be right for us to understand this in the sense that Jesus has overcome even the powers of hell. He has overcome the powers and principalities of this world. And that's important because it tells us that everything has been conquered. Everything has been overcome. On earth, in heaven, under the earth, everywhere, everyone will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you get a sense that his victory is total. It is complete. His salvation then that he offers to you is total. It is complete. There's no thing left to be done. It has been finished. So from the powers and temptations of the world to the work of your sinful nature to the wrath that your sin deserved to the death that you must now face, and even the spiritual powers of darkness that are at war against your soul, all of it has been overcome. And we get then this shift in the text. And this is where we go from this just being a psalm about the affliction that was being faced to seeing that it's actually a psalm about this victory. He was forsaken, but he was not forgotten. He cries out to the Lord as he's been doing. 
but this time there's a sense of real hope that hasn't seemed present. Save me from the mouth of the lion, he says. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The salvation of the Lord is at hand. This is why it's so important to know this this full context. Jesus does not utter these words, why have you forsaken me on the cross, simply as a prayer of his own, though it is, or simply to show that he was the one being prophesied about, though that is true as well. He also uses it as a declaration of triumph, despite his affliction. I will praise you, it says. You who fear the Lord, praise him, right? Glorify his name, stand in awe of him, it says. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. It seemed like it was all over for the one that was forsaken. He has even died, been laid down in the dust of death. But it wasn't over. That was all necessary. But it was not the end. So he says in verse 26, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Keep going with me. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. That doesn't sound like an exclamation of of pain or affliction anymore, does it? And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship Before him shall bow all who go down to dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. There there you have those who are afflicted, no longer have to be afflicted in him. They can praise him. Those who are dead, who go down into death, they no longer have to die because they will also praise him. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He was forsaken, but now he rules over the nations. This is what was necessary for God to accomplish the promise that he had promised to Abraham, that in his offspring all the families of the earth would be blessed. Sin had to be dealt with. We're told that God passed over former sins in times of old, but he he had to deal with them. He had to be just because he is just, judgment had to fall on sin and yet he desired to justify his people and it's in christ it's on the cross it's through this work through his passion that god can be both just and the justifier sin was punished as it needed to be god's justice was satisfied and the powers and principalities of this world were overcome so there's no more obstacle No longer are people stuck under the domain of darkness and under the rule of Satan. No longer do the nations have to be trapped in sin and false worship. Now Jesus Christ has opened the doors of the temple and living water is flowing out. You could picture it like this. 
that Jesus Christ is life itself. He contains within himself true life. And it was through being speared in the side as water flowed from his side that now that life is going out to all in the world. It says that even those who go down to the dust can't, those that can't keep themselves alive, even they will bow before him. So death is no longer an obstacle. Death is not an obstacle to the worship of God. Those in the grave cannot praise the Lord, and yet here, that's overcome. That's taken care of. The final promise is one of the continued application of this work for generations to come. God shows his steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. And so it says, posterity shall serve him. And the work of God will be proclaimed to those yet to come. What is it specifically that it says is going to be proclaimed? The work of God, what is it? It's the very last phrase in the psalm. That he has done it. That's what's being proclaimed. His finished work. That it's done. He has overcome. He has conquered. It is finished. So what began with an exclamation of affliction by the one forsaken has now turned to be a proclamation that the Lord has accomplished what is necessary for reconciliation. And this is where I want to close. This is what I want us to focus on here at the end. We read already where it said, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And that's not just a sweet, poetic device, right? It's not just to make you feel better when you feel bad. It's not something that is is out of reach and far away from you. This is what Jesus Christ has made possible for any who would call upon his name. This can be true for you completely. Do you feel restless in your soul, looking to be satisfied? Would you describe yourself as desiring some kind of relationship with God, but you feel that you can't get there? The scripture tells us, and I think that you yourself know, that there are many things in the way of being able to really and truly have an actual relationship with God. For him to be your father, you to be his child. We've talked about all of these, but... We'll go through them again. First is sin and the sin nature. The fact that you have sinned means that there is a judgment that's necessary upon that sin. Sin has to be punished for God to be just. And beyond that, you also have a a nature that is inclined toward sin and that is hostile toward him. Even if God himself showed up, even if he himself spoke to you, if you remain in that state of nature you would not recognize him or even worse what happened when he did come and dwell among mankind what happened when he did come and show himself as clearly as he could be seen and speak as clearly as he could be heard he was crucified we killed him so sin and that sin nature have to be dealt with they have to be overcome second 
the world stands against him. And when we say the world, we don't mean the, the physical earth, the physical world. Right? In the biblical sense, the world is that the kingdoms of mankind that are in rebellion to him. So they stand against him. They stand against his kingdom. There's also then the nature of the world as it brings temptation to join in that rebellion, to join in rebellion against him. Thirdly, there is the consequence of sin that is death. Right? Death must be dealt with if you are to know the living and true God. You cannot praise him from the grave. Fourth is the spiritual powers and principalities, right? the, the demonic forces of the world that are arrayed against the Lord. Right? There are spiritual powers at work in the world. This is why when Christ came, he was always casting out demons. We don't live uh, in, in a place of pure material, right? It's not, the, the problems that we face are not purely physical, right? So they're not purely intellectual. They're not purely emotional, right? We often deal with problems that way, right? We look to various kinds of medication or counseling, various kinds of, of physical work various kinds of, of intellectual study as if it will overcome some of the problems. And all of these things need to be redeemed. And yet, that's not the only problem because we are ultimately also spiritual beings. We have a body and a soul. So this too, these, these forces that would keep us from the Lord must be overcome. But all of these sin, the sin nature, the judgment that stands over you, these spiritual forces of darkness, death itself, the world as it is arrayed against the Lord and against any that would follow him, that would uh, pledge their allegiance to him, all of them have been overcome. All of them have been conquered. Everything that stood in the way of being reconciled to God, he has accomplished. He has finished. Brothers and sisters, let me close with these words from the psalm. He has done it. May your hearts live forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would take your word and like a seed planted deep within our hearts that you would water it by your spirit and that it would grow up to produce much fruit that you would not allow us to see any obstacle in our way of knowing you of knowing you more deeply as if it were the last thing that cannot be overcome but rather we would see that he has done it all that we would recognize in the work of Christ, the total conquering of every enemy, and the complete reconciliation of us to our Heavenly Father. Help us, we pray. Lord Jesus, help us. Have mercy upon us. We pray in your name. Amen.